Imagine for a moment that it's April of 1955. You're an avid baseball fan living in a small city like Greensboro, North Carolina. The closest major league team to you would be the Washington Senators, 300 miles away. So you can't just pop over to Griffith Stadium to catch a game. Not that you'd want to, anyway, because the Senators are terrible around this time. And even if your family owns a TV, not that many games are televised. That wouldn't be a regular thing until the future. So what do you do to watch baseball? One option would be a minor league team, in this case, the Greensboro Patriots, the minor league affiliate for the Boston Red Sox. But there's another option as well. You see an ad in the paper one day for the Indianapolis Clowns and the New York Black Yankees. They're coming to town on April 10th. It's going to be the start of their new barnstorming season. You've heard about these guys before. So you mark your calendar, and when the day comes, you head over to War Memorial Stadium. You buy your ticket, and you follow the crowd of excited fans into the stadium. There, you're all treated to a unique spectacle. Coming off a Negro League World Championship, the Clowns claim to have the fastest outfield in all of baseball, and you watch an all as center fielder Verdi's Drake tracks down fly balls with machine-like accuracy. An inning or two later, you notice something bizarre. A man dressed in a top hat and tuxedo with giant clown shoes is sitting by third base in a folding chair, legs crossed reading a newspaper. Everyone laughs. You see, this is planned, part of the show. Over the years, the clowns perfected the art of mixing baseball and comedy, and their yearly barnstorming tours made them a hit with fans of all stripes across the country. On the surface, this all seems like a good-natured, fun event. You get to see some good baseball, and the comedic antics along the way seem to make everyone laugh. So what's the harm? The reality is, is that things actually aren't that simple. The clowns would go on to leave behind a uniquely complicated legacy. To this day, they remain one of the most misunderstood teams in the history of baseball. That story's next. So there's this new trend in podcasting where podcasters are now making private, exclusive shows. Companies do it for internal use, maybe to connect more deeply with their employees. Professionals might use it for membership courses, and creators use it for premium content. Lately, I've been partnering with a company called Castos, and they make this process easy. With Castos mobile app, you can give your listeners a rich listening experience for your private podcast. No more fussing with private RSS feeds or potentially insecure content that can too easily be shared outside your network. Available on both iOS and Android, the Castos mobile app is the perfect complement to your private podcast. Learn more at castos.com. Okay, now on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called Bring in the Clowns. They're being willing to do whatever it was um, to bring out fans and to earn this living. And sometimes that took the form of something called shadow ball, where they would be uh, running so fast and pantomiming catching a baseball so well that it didn't matter that they were out there performing with no actual baseball. Larry Ty has written about 
well, everything, it seems like. As a reporter for the Boston Globe, he covered everything from medicine to the environment, and his biographies often receive critical acclaim, like the one about Bobby Kennedy. But it's his 2009 book on Satchel Paige that's most interesting to me. In the book, he describes how ballplayers such as Paige are a big reason why baseball is considered America's pastime. Of course, Satchel Paige is considered by many to be the most talented pitcher who ever lived. And when he traveled the country on barnstorming tours, he dazzled fans and towns everywhere with his skill and flashy style. Larry and I spoke over the phone one morning, and he described how Satchel and other players from the era dazzled fans with comedy routines during baseball games. Sometimes with guys like Satchel Paige, it would be doing things that only he had the skill to do. He would warm up actually sitting down on the pitching mound, throwing to a catcher who was in a rocking chair. Or he would do something that defies the imagination to think that he could actually get away with it and that his teammates would go along with it, where he would warm up throwing a baseball at his teammates who had in their mouths a lit cigarette. And you had to know that somebody was as fine-tuned a pitcher as Satchel was to let this guy throw a baseball aiming towards your head and knowing that they would actually miss your head and hit the cigarette. And Satchel did that just about every time. It was doing, again, whatever it took to take these fans who were selling out their hard-earned money and give them a show long before the official game began. Like a lot of guys Satchel's age, he played on barnstorming tours. For nearly a century, starting in the 1860s, all manner of teams formed and toured the country to play baseball. There was this one team called the House of David in the early 20th century, who were essentially just a gang of bearded guys who loved to play baseball. The Bloomer Girls were an all-women's team, and the Cherokee Indian Club from Michigan was comprised of all Native Americans. These teams would travel the country, playing any other collection of nine people imaginable. Police unions, rotary clubs, community teams, Everyone had a baseball team, it seemed like. Kind of like podcasting today. Barnstorming came about because it was a way of letting players exhibit their skills to anybody who was willing to pay them. As little as $15 a game and as much as 500 It was at a time uh, before there were very good organized leagues in the Negro Leagues, the segregated part of baseball that blacks were relegated to, and it let them earn money, show their skills, and fine-tune their playing skills so that they could hopefully, during the actual season, play in a um, steadier form of employment on a Negro League's team. Even future Hall of Famers like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig held their own barnstorming tours at the height of their fame, often to the chagrin of Major League Baseball. They didn't like the idea of players profiting without them. What they failed to realize was that it was barnstorming that helped endear baseball to Americans all over the country. Without barnstorming, baseball probably doesn't become as popular as it is now. I mean, think about it. Pro baseball teams have always been based in large cities. And before there was TV, if you didn't live near a stadium, you didn't get to see baseball. Unless a barnstorming team came to town. And that was how people in all parts of the country saw 
and grew to love the game of baseball. It's why kids all over the country decided to pick up a glove and play baseball. Black barnstorming teams had unique challenges, though. Think about it this way. Black players were barred from playing Major League Baseball, so they began forming their own leagues. And by the 1920s, what are commonly known now as the Negro Leagues were formed. These were players whose talent was on par with their white counterparts, but made far less money. So to supplement their income, they went on barnstorming tours in the off-season. Like all other barnstormers, they would travel anywhere and everywhere that could play. This often meant playing white amateur teams, who were, well, amateurs. And they couldn't beat them too much for two reasons. One is for their own safety, as you suggest. You want to get out of town without being lynched. You don't embarrass the local white team, which is often the policemen or the firemen or whatever pickup group was inviting these Negro leaders in town. And the other reason is you wanted to be invited back the next year. And even if it wasn't a question of safety, it was a question of economics. If you win by a lopsided score like my Boston Red Sox lost by yesterday of 12 to 1, it's embarrassing enough that the team is not likely to invite you back. If you let a few runners get on base and you let a few balls go in softly and go out hard as home runs, and the score that you beat them by is 12 to 11, that is very enticing for them to invite you back next year because they think they can win and the fans think it's going to be a really competitive game. And so Satchel was a master at striking out ball players when he knew he had to, and he was confident enough that he did something that, again, sounds mythic, but was true. He would sometimes tell his outfielders and even his infielders to actually sit down, and he was confident enough that the batter couldn't even put the ball in play, that he didn't need any fielders, all he needed was his strikeout pitches. And he'd use those when that was appropriate, and he'd let in a home run when he knew that was essential. And it was, to me, the ultimate mastery of a great ball player and a great black ball player that he could use his wiles, he could use his charm, he could use his extraordinary intelligence to win with whatever it took. And that was three levels beyond what even the best white ball players ever had to think about. All they had to think about if they were a pitcher is trying to get a strikeout. Satchel had so much more in mind to keep alive, to keep his family fed, and to keep invitations coming. So that's how this odd fusion of comedy and baseball came about. Spectators loved it, while by and large, it was still baseball as we know it. Sure, there was comedy, but it was mostly relegated to pregame rituals and maybe a few things here and there between innings. But between the lines for nine innings, it was still baseball. But there was one team who would challenge that perception. They were a really good ball team for most of their years, for most of their seasons. I mean, as a baseball team. That's Brian Carroll, a professor of communications at Berry College in Georgia, and he's talking about the Indianapolis Clowns. Now, it's a pure coincidence that we actually come from the same hometown. Back in the 90s, he covered the Greensboro Bats, a single-A team in the South Atlantic League, at a time when I was just a kid going to my first-ever baseball games at an old venue called War Memorial Stadium. I mentioned it in the opening monologue. It's exactly the type of place you'd imagine a team like the Clowns coming to play. It was old, but charming. Anyway, Brian's written quite a bit about baseball, in particular, 
Black Baseball Players, and the Black Press. He's authored six books and has also written about the clowns. The Globetrotter-esque aspects sort of grow as time goes on, and so they become what we think of when we think of the team more at the end of their trajectory, which, by the way, was longer than any other Negro League team. So I think that's really important, too, as we look at the positives. Yeah, they succeeded when all else failed. That's worth, that's worth respect all by itself. Now, the clowns were an exceptional case of this. Oftentimes, their comedy wasn't just a sideshow, but central to their performance. These comedy routines were out there, and they often involved pranks on opposing players and umpires. For instance, a player named Sam Bryson, a talented athlete who also played for the Harlem Globetrotters, had a routine where he'd argue a called strike with the umpire. That's actually probably the most normal thing that could ever happen in a baseball game ever at any time. But what happened next wasn't normal at all. During this argument, usually overly animated for comedic effect, another player would run out and light a firecracker under the umpire's butt which is pretty funny. Sometimes the catcher might bring out a rocking chair while infielders would sit in a folding chair and read a newspaper during an inning while the game was happening. The clowns also employed the use of little people. Seriously, more than one dwarf played for them over the years. They also had a player with one arm and one year they did this really bizarre routine involving a dog, a fake fire hydrant, and raw hot dogs. You're just going to have to use your imagination for that one. I don't want to say anymore. In some cases, their games included marching bands, war paint, bizarre costumes, and all manner of pageantry. Even as someone who works in minor league baseball, I was flabbergasted as I did my research on this. Now, all of this fun actually obscured how good the clowns were at times. In 1941, they won 125 games winning games against top Negro League teams like the Memphis Red Sox, the Birmingham Black Barons, and won the Little World Series of the West, which, outside of the actual World Series, was the biggest event a team in 1941 could hope to win. They won four Negro League championships between 1950 and 55, and employed a number of really good ball players over the years, like Dave Showboat Thomas, one of the best defensive first basemen ever to play in the Negro Leagues, or the famous spitballer, Roosevelt Davis, who pitched for more than 20 years in the Negro Leagues. Satchel Paige was often hired for a few games at a time, and when he pitched, he was a huge draw for fans. The Clowns can even be credited with signing Hank Aaron to his first professional contract in 1952. He played one season with the Clowns before the Milwaukee Braves bought out his contract. Even the players more known for their comedy were a big hit too. Alan Pollock, son of the Clowns owner, Sid Pollock, credits players like Richard King, known more by his stage name, King Tut, for endearing fans of all races to black baseball. He referred to him as the soul of the Negro Leagues. Tut spent more than two decades with the Clowns, and while he was allegedly a pretty solid athlete, his comedy routines were the things of legend. Tens of thousands of spectators came out to watch him. He'd pantomime a fishing routine with a dwarf named Beep Bop or juggle baseballs between innings. He became so well-known that actual circus clowns credit him as an inspiration for some of their acts. The clowns also broke down gender barriers. They were the first men's professional baseball team to allow women to play for them. Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mammy Peanuts Johnson all played for the clowns in the early 50s and, for the most part, held their own against the guys. 
Seen through a certain lens, the clowns could be seen as an inspiring success story. During an era of segregation, the all-black clowns team managed to endear themselves to fans of all races and all classes all over America. Their mixture of comedy and baseball brought joy to people, especially black people, under the thumb of Jim Crow and racism. And from a business standpoint, they did pretty well too. For a while, they would sell out stadiums and even outsold white major league teams. But there's another side to this tell. A more nuanced, less flattering side to the clowns that says more about American society than it does about the clowns. That's next. Hey, since you like podcasts and are already on a podcast app, why don't you check out another one? Maybe after you're done with this episode. Learn more about the role psychology and emotions play in driving misinformation in today's chaotic media environment in the brand new podcast series, Hyped, Public Relations, Misinformation, and the Fight for Truth. Co-hosted by two PR and marketing industry veterans, Hype takes you inside the industry that has profited from fake news, front groups, and stunts. Each episode explores entertaining stories that help us all understand where information is coming from and how we can be more informed media consumers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Right, so imagine that you're a black ball player and you're invited to some small town in Indiana and you are the host of the town coming and playing against their most venerated athletes. And then it comes to nighttime and your game is over and you're looking for a place to sleep. And no hotel will take you because they're all segregated whites-only hotels. No restaurant will serve you. If you are lucky enough to find a train out of town, you're probably relegated to the caboose or somewhere near the um, exhaust for the train. You end up sleeping on the side of the road or in your car. You eat out of a can of disgusting food. You bathe in somebody's backyard if you're lucky to find a black family that will put a kettle on and heat some water for you. You're living a life as a baseball star during the day and at night as a black man in Jim Crow America. And it was a bit of a nightmare. John Gray didn't need to imagine that scenario. He lived it. At just 21 years old, he'd already been released by the Cleveland Indians farm system and found himself playing for 200 bucks a month for the clowns. That didn't cover his food when they traveled either. His story was probably not unlike every other clowns player who came before him. But Gray was clinging to hope. Having seen Hank Aaron jump from the clowns to the Braves after only six weeks a few years earlier, he figured he had a shot too. Though if his contract was bought out by a big league club, he wouldn't get any of that. Gray was profiled for a New York Post column by a writer named Milton Gross in 1958, more than a decade after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier and the decline of the Negro Leagues began. The column painted a pretty unflattering picture of the clowns. Gross wrote that the clowns had given up playing serious baseball and were purely an exhibitionist team by that point. He scathingly described a dwarf named Bebop who used a bat three times his size, he mocked a first baseman named Nature Boy Williams who played in a red dress and even took aim at fan favorite King Tut, who he lamented was more comedian than ball player. Gray, meanwhile, half-heartedly participated in these antics in hopes that one day they'd lead to the big leagues. They never did. 
Stories like this were a constant reminder that these were still black men playing baseball in segregated America, being relegated to a style of baseball that at times could fill beneath them. The shadow world of Negro leagues and Negro barnstorming baseball was set up by white America as part of this injustice and indignity of a segregated Jim Crow America. And so all these guys were doing was trying to capitalize on a system to make enough money to support their families. And to them, it wasn't the question of dignity. The dignity came in showing that they could perform as well as Babe Ruth or Dizzy Dean or the best of the white ball players who got to earn more money, play for bigger crowds, and didn't have to spend just about every day or night of the year out there on the road, you know, living from the back of their jalopy and eating from a can of food because they weren't allowed in the whites-only restaurants. The system was set up by white America. Players like Satchel never lost their dignity. And it's only by layer standards that we look back and say, geez, how could they do that clowning? The clowning was the same way the Harlem Globetrotters showed over the generations with basketball, a way of entertaining, but never denying the extraordinary artistry and talent of the ball players. Pollock and even Gray himself argued that Gross twisted his words and made a lot of assumptions when he published this column in 1958. But controversy in the clowns went back decades. The clowns have a unique history within the universe of, of baseball and the Negro Leagues in particular. Their origins uh, begin as a team that was not meant to be a serious team per se, if you listen to my episode on Happy Chandler, then you'll remember Dr. Doswell. Well, I'm Dr. Raymond Doswell. I'm the Vice President of Curatorial Services here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. When I asked him about the Clowns, he said they were one of the most misunderstood teams in the history of the Negro Leagues. And you're about to see why. The team's roots can be traced back to Miami and their predecessors, the Cuban Giants which is kind of confusing because no one on the team was actually Cuban. It was really a group of black players who, going back to some time in the 1880s, entertained guests at ritzy hotels by putting on baseball games mixed with comedy during the day and working at those same hotels and serving those same guests at night. While a lot of this history is murky, it's known that by the 1920s, the Negro Leagues and black baseball in general were pretty well established and teams like the Kansas City Monarchs and the Chicago American Giants were playing serious, high-level baseball. However, that dynamic Larry Ty described earlier, where black ball players made less than their white counterparts and, to feed their families, went barnstorming during the offseason, often playing against amateur white and semi-pro teams and adding comedy because that was apparently something white fans expected from them. That was still a thing, and the Cuban Giants were pretty good at that thing. They operated under various names for several years, eventually adopting the name Miami Ethiopian Clowns, which was problematic. The idea behind the name was supposed to be an homage to Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, who was usurped by Benito Mussolini's fascist government in 1936. He survived and became an international sensation seen as a martyr of sorts. I think the best 
gloss on why they become the Ethiopian clowns is as tribute to this hero, if you will, tragic hero here in the States as a marketing thing. And that that's something that, again, the black writers and editors are very uncomfortable with. How dare you take a political situation which real lives are at stake and just use it for your commercially exploitative goals and purposes. Aside from the issues with the team name, many people saw the style of the clowns play to be an affront to black baseball and black people everywhere. They added uh, these vaudeville-like antics to their play that unfortunately also perpetuated certain stereotypes about black people or at least themes that were deemed to be entertaining to white audiences uh, perpetuating black stereotypes or stereotypical images beginning as the Miami Ethiopian clowns and they and various offshoots of them would do things like face painting uh, wear grass skirts instead of uniform pants and have uh, made up African nicknames like Igbu or some crazy nonsense like that. Wendell Smith, a legendary and influential black sports writer for the Pittsburgh Courier, held nothing back. He referred to the clowns as a fourth-rate Uncle Tom minstrel show. Cumberland Posey, who owned the Homestead Grays, also had a weekly column with the Courier and was probably their fiercest critic. He often took aim at Pollock, who was white, for exploiting the fall of Ethiopia. And just the fact that the team was owned by a white man added another layer of complication. Now, in all fairness to Sid Pollock, he was known to be a pretty good guy who paid players fairly relative to what they could have made elsewhere and is even known to have advocated for integration as early as 1933. His view was that the major shouldn't just sign a single black player, but entire teams, if for no other reason than to boost attendance. What's not as well known is that he maintained lifetime friendships with his former players, setting up a pension fund for them, and was known to treat many of them like his own family. Still, through a modern lens, the optics of someone like Pollock, well-intentioned as he might have been, profiting from white stereotypes about black people aren't great. It's the same relationship we have with minstrelsy, with blackface in its own time period. We, we can see it for what it was much better now looking back. Posey and other Negro League team owners had a problem with it at the time, too. They boycotted the clowns, refusing to play them during the season. And perhaps only after realizing that the team still drew a lot of fans, maybe afraid that players from their own teams might jump ship, did they form an uneasy truce. The clowns could join the Negro Leagues on a few conditions. The craziest of those antics, like the grass skirts, war paint, silly nicknames, and of course, the name Ethiopian, had to be dropped. The clowns agreed and joined the Negro American League in 1943. They adopted the name Cincinnati Clowns and eventually settled down in Indianapolis and called themselves the Indianapolis Clowns. Within four years, Jackie Robinson broke the Major League Baseball color barrier, and as many black players followed suit during the late 40s and all through the 50s, the Negro Leagues began to decline, rapidly. But the Clowns, however, were alive and well barnstorming and doing comedy during the offseason, and collecting four Negro American League titles in 1950, 51, 52, and 54. Like I mentioned, they signed Hank Aaron in 1952, he got picked up by the Braves, and pretty much became the best player ever. It was also around this time they broke the gender barrier, with the aforementioned Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mammy Johnson all playing for the Clowns. 
but it couldn't last. With the decline of the Negro Leagues, the Clowns jumped ship in 1956 and returned to barnstorming full-time. Once again, baseball was the sideshow, and comedy was the focus. They even hired their own touring partner, the New York Black Yankees. And while they still employed talented players over the years like Verdi's Drake, stories like the one Milton Gross wrote for the New York Post seemed to be the dominant narrative. From the perspective of Pollock, this was unfair. The Clowns were doing the only thing they knew to make the business work, and they still provided black players with another shot, perhaps their last, at the majors. In his book, Barnstorming to Heaven, Alan Pollock, said son, claimed that the fans still loved the Clowns, even as it became a nearly possible business venture to sustain. Through all the struggles, the Clowns kept on, but eventually became a shell of their former self. Sid Pollock retired in 1964 and sold the team off to his longtime business partner, Ed Hammond, who, against all odds, kept the team afloat into the 70s, by which point, white players joined the team too, traveling the country, entertaining fans, and clinging to hope. Even in their later years, the Clowns always provided that. Hammond sold the team off to a former player named George Long, who kept the team around into the 80s before handing over the keys to another former player named Dave Clark, who, as a player-manager, went down with the ship in 1989. That would be the Clowns' final season. There's a lot of ways to look at those final years for the Clowns, but it's worth pointing out that the Clowns, for whatever their sins, operated longer than any other black baseball team spanning roughly half a century. The success speaks for itself, and, and so really the Clowns could not be ignored because they were just so successful. And it also can't be ignored what the Clowns and other black barnstorming players like Satchel Paige did for baseball. It was years and decades of black ball players showing not just how good they were, but much more importantly to owners like Branch Rickey, bottom line guys, showing that they could bring white fans out to watch them as they played in barnstorming interracial games across America. They showed that they could fill the stands, they showed they were worth the money, and they showed how they could star. And that's why that's why Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson. And had Branch Rickey had the insight and the courage, I'm convinced it wouldn't have been Jackie Robinson who broke the barrier. It would have been Satchel. It's hard to say exactly what people would think of the Clowns today and as a whole the Negro Leagues and Black Baseball if it weren't for an unusual pop culture phenomenon. Cohen in, in production early on said, this film will set the myth of black baseball firmly and forever. That's next. Well, you've arrived at the part of the episode where the host asks you to subscribe to the podcast. And if you feel so inclined, leave a nice review. Just not a bad one, please. The reason you hear this kind of stuff a lot is because when you do that, it helps more people find podcasts like Obscure Ball. Seriously, I'm really bad at marketing, so if you could help me out with that, that'd be cool. Okay, back to the episode. We going barnstorming with our own all-star team. Oh, yeah. Who we going to play? Are uh, we going to play the, 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 the firehouse clubs and the local talent? I mean, there's good money out there, Leon. Iowa, Illinois, California. Oh, no, no, there ain't nobody going to want to play us in California. Sometimes, when a book is adapted for a screenplay, the filmmakers don't quite capture the intent of the author. And people who read the book first always remind us of that. That's basically what happened to William Brasher's 1973 novel, 
Bingo Long's Traveling All-Stars and the Motor Kings. Set in the late 1930s, Brashler tells the story of a fictional group of black players who spurned their Negro League teams to go traveling across the country, playing on their own terms, or barnstorming. This seems like a good idea, but the players face all kinds of hardship and trials, namely racism, but persist through it all. At the end of the story, they learn that the color barrier in the major leagues has been lifted, but not for them. Rather, a young player named Joe Calloway. The rest of them were just too old. The story ends on a bitter note, with Bingo Long saying something like if he had been 10 years younger. The novel was a big success for Brashler, and in 1976 was adapted into a film with megastars Billy D. Williams, James Earl Jones, and Richard Pryor. But as often happens, the filmmakers took some creative liberties. One, it becomes a comedy. Two, the Bingo Long character is changed into a pitcher instead of the catcher. And Leon Carter becomes the catcher. Why is that? Well, because the star player, uh, the star of the film is Billy D. Williams, the black Clark Gable, uh, <laughs> who had just done Lady Sings the Blues. And you're not going to put a catcher's mask on Billy D. Williams. But the thing is, is that it becomes more of a comedy than a more serious story as the book was. Also, the team in the film was pretty much based off the real-life Indianapolis clowns. And the final connection to all of it is Ed Hammond. And Ed Hammond was the business partner of Sid Pollock with the Indianapolis clowns. And he was a clown himself and came up with a lot of this shtick that the team would do, especially uh, in the later years. And so... Hammond is around, and some of the last remnants of players from the Indianapolis Clowns are still around, including midget Darrell Austin, uh, one-armed player as well. And Hammond is teaching those guys are doing the clowning shtick in the film as well. And so now that ramps up the clowning aspect of this team. So you really had the connection to the real, the, the least the the last remnants of the Indianapolis Clowns as part of the a part of the film and making that a clown team. And so that that's kind of what the film ends up being. And there's a heroic ending, a not quite like the book, but it became something that was meant to be, I wouldn't call it necessarily a family-friendly film, but a little bit more uplifting. This film was very well written about and covered by the Los Angeles Times at the time. Uh, and Cohen in, in production early on said. This film will set the myth of Black baseball firmly and forever. It will set the myth of Black baseball firmly and forever. Maybe that's part of the problem. The book, at least, tried to show the humanity and struggle of the players. The film was more slapstick and, in many ways, embodied exactly what the real-life critics of the clowns hated about them. The film did a lot to skew the public's perspective of the Negro Leagues, despite its rich history. Think back to that scenario I painted earlier, about living in Greensboro in 1955 and seeing the clowns for the first time. Well, that's exactly how many Americans were first introduced to the idea of the Negro Leagues. A film like Bingo Long didn't do much to help with that. It was many people's first introduction to Negro Leagues history. Frankly, it was my very first introduction to Negro Leagues history. I lived in St. Louis and didn't know anything about the St. Louis Stars black baseball team. I've heard of Cool Papa Bell because there's a street in St. Louis and there's a, a number of schools and things where I went to that are near that street. So I knew who he was and 
of him and what he was, but the, the, the scope of his career as a young person growing up in the St. Louis area, I had no clue. Um, and so that film comes on as the CBS late night movie on a weekend with commercials and I'm watching it <laughs> with my family uh, in the summer. And that was my first introduction to that story and to that film. And it is many people's first introduction. This has been the only film to come out about the Negro Leagues. Uh, and there hasn't been a film since and everything else now with media being so spread out and proliferated it's hard to say whether there would be another major theatrical piece on the Negro Leagues. Even so, the film was a huge success both critically and commercially. It currently holds an 87% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and critics at the time mostly liked it. But I think Roger Ebert gave what I thought was a pretty fitting review. He said it was fun, and it was. He compared himself as a white spectator to the fans who were entertained by Bingo Long and the All-Stars without ever quite realizing or understanding their hurt. And that way, at least, the film was probably pretty accurate. Obscure Ball is presented by Small League Productions. Each episode is written, edited, produced, and narrated by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. Music for this episode is provided by Storyblocks. A special thanks to Larry Ty. Brian Carroll, and Dr. Raymond Doswell. And be sure to subscribe to Obscure Ball so you'll get a heads up when there's new episodes, which is occasionally. <laughs>